Welcome to the podcast, The Scriptures This Week, for Sunday, February 25th, 2024, from the First Presbyterian Church of Big Spring, Texas. We are in the season of Lent, and the lectionary selections for this week are Psalm 22, verses 23 to 31, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 7, plus 15 and 16, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, and Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Our daily prayers and the weekly devotional all come from these same scriptures as usual. So let's begin with Psalm 22, beginning in verse 23. You who revere the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who revere him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying, He has done it. Psalm 22 begins with the well-remembered lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We didn't read the beginning section. We only started midway through. But Christians hear this lament from Christ as he died on the cross and often do not know that that comes from Psalm 22. As used in the psalm, it is the opening of a classic lament psalm. There are two parts here. The lamentation runs from the beginning to verse 21. And the remaining verses offer thanksgiving and praise to God for resolving the trouble they brought on the earlier lament. The turn from lament to praise is the perceived divine answer to the prayer for salvation that happens right in the middle. Something has happened, or is at least believed to have happened, understood to have happened. God has delivered because God delivers, and that is a cause for celebration. It's an old narrative. It's the narrative of the Hebrew escape from Egyptian slavery and captivity. It's the return from exile 500 years later. It is the gospel that Christ taught and revealed. God sees our afflictions. God hears our cries. God acts on our behalf. We have only this particular section of the psalm for this week, but we should really step back and maybe consider the entire epic piece, because 
It's the journey of faith. It begins with a sense of abandonment and ends with joyful gratitude. It could be our affirmation in faith, affirmation of faith, grounded in the true identity of God. So now let's continue into our reading from Genesis 17. This is a conversation between God and Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. We often speak of the covenant when we talk about God's relationship with humanity, particularly in the Old Testament setting. Many Christians and Christian scholars identify five covenants in the Bible. The covenant with Noah, the one with Abraham, the one with Moses. Those are prominent. It's the one with Moses, in fact, that we most often refer to as the covenant because it comes with the Torah. But God also made a covenant with David. And then there was the new covenant referred to by prophets like Jeremiah, in which God would write the Torah, the law, God's instruction, in people's hearts, not just on a piece of paper. And then there's the other new covenant, which comes with Jesus. You know, in the Eucharistic words of institution, Jesus pours the wine and says to the disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, last week we read the Noah covenant, and this week in Genesis 17, we get the Abraham covenant. The Noah covenant really required nothing of Noah, so maybe it was more of a promise than a two-party contract. But the Abraham covenant requires something of Abraham. It requires that he, as a human partner, to walk blamelessly, just like Noah had done in his generation. If Abraham does this, then God will be his God, and great blessings will follow. Initially, in God's monologue of chapter 17, the covenant is only with Abe, but then it gets broader 
it goes to Abe's offspring, and then ultimately to all generations in Abraham's lineage. We might consider the legacy of promises made by both partners to the contract. All through the Bible, the people question whether God has or even can keep the promises that God has made. For Lent, we acknowledge that we have not kept our side of the deal. Now let's turn to our third reading, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark 8, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any of you want to become my followers, then let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, they will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A couple of things to start with here. We don't read verse 27, but here, but in those verses, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they answer him, well, it could be John the Baptist or Elijah. Other people say you're a prophet. And then Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? Gets personal at that point. The other thing to consider is here at the final verses, when Jesus says, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake uh, will will save it. There's two Greek words for life. One is zoe, which means your physical life, your living and breathing. And then there's suke, which is your mind, your self-interest, your self-awareness, which is spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E, like psyche or psyche. It's that suke, psyche, that Jesus is referring to, at least as far as the Greek is concerned. Now, people are regularly offended in society by other people claiming the choice of their own sexual orientation, or worse, their gender identity, who they say they are. But really, we all make choices about our fundamental identities all the time. Moral distaste only happens when those choices involve sex or sexuality. In the Enlightenment era story of Candide, the protagonist rebels against the optimistic identity of humanity and the world proclaimed by 
the fictional philosopher in the story, whose name is Pangloss. He is famous for the phrase, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. That's how he identifies the world. Candide rejects that identity, and his journey throughout the story proves that Candide is right. In Mark 8, even Jesus recognizes multiple identity possibilities when he asks his disciples who people say he is. And then he asks the disciples who they say he is. As contemporary disciples, Jesus asks us precisely the same question during Lent. Who do we say Jesus is? But Jesus also asks us another question, which is closely related to the first question. It kind of follows. If you say one thing, then how do you respond to the second question? Who do we say we are? Who are we? How do we identify ourselves? Our choices reveal the ultimate in existential and maybe anthropological identity, human kinds of identity the kinds of things that people argue in the culture wars all day, all day long. Jesus says we have two options. We can be self-determining and employ all our efforts and resources toward self-fulfillment, including making religion an instrument of self-fulfillment. Or, two, we can be self-denying and devote ourselves towards something larger in our own self-interest, set aside our self-interest in a relationship with God through Christ. Surely this identity choice is the most fundamental, or this identity choosing is the most fundamental one of all and makes all others look kind of puny. More importantly, the answer we give reveals whether or not we take Christ seriously, or as it says in the gospel, whether we are ashamed of Jesus. Now let's move to our final reading, which comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, beginning as the fourth chapter, beginning in the 13th verse. Paul writes, For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Let's read that again. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Former Yale Divinity School professor David Bartlett pointed out how frustrating it is to read Paul's letters. Paul didn't write proper essays that begin with a thesis and built in a linear way toward a conclusion. And that makes him the hero of all dyslexic people everywhere. Instead, Bartlett noted that Paul sticks wisdom nuggets into subordinate clauses randomly throughout his texts. Remember, Paul didn't deliver sermons. He wrote letters to react to problematic situations in congregations. So here in Romans 4, maybe he's figuring out the problem of how Roman Gentiles can have a true relationship with God without getting into the Torah or Jewish tradition. Abraham is an example of a Jew who did not live by those things because he came before those things. And so how did Abraham have a relationship with the divine? Through faith alone. That was his only option. Abraham had faith, which was confidence, which was trust, that even though he was beyond the age, beyond the biological age of any ability to cause Sarah to conceive, and that she was beyond the age biologically to conceive or carry a child, Abraham trusted that God could make it happen. As Bartlett says, God could bring life out of Abraham's dead loins. All this happened before there was ever a Torah, and even before Abraham bore the mark of a male Jew, which was circumcision. Through Abraham, many nations came into being, and, you know, another definition of nations, it's not just a political entity on a map, but it means in, from, the, from the Greek origin, Gentiles. The nations are Gentiles. So through Abraham, God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. And through faith, we can be people of the God who gives life. We can worship the God whose identity is giving life, which makes our identity faithfulness. So, do you know who you are? Or do you know who God is? Maybe you're someone who God hears and extricates from affliction. God is the hearing and saving God. Maybe you're someone defined by your faith in the God who can give purpose to human life through a divine vision. Maybe you're someone who is primarily interested in maximizing your personal interests 
and you think God is pleased with that, in which case Jesus' words might be disturbing. Or maybe you're the other hand. Maybe you're someone who denies your self-interests, sets them aside for more enlightened interests, God's interests. Maybe you're just a person who is grateful that God imagined you one night long ago as he talked to Abraham beneath the stars. Well, in any event, Godspeed.